Welcome to Arrows on Air, presented by Tomorrow's Air. I'm Christina Beckman, and this is a show about the other sides of climate action. Here we learn from the fascinating experiences of adventurers, artists, storytellers, and scientists who help show us not only the how of climate action, but also why it's worth the effort. Hello and welcome. Today we're in for a real treat. I'm chatting with Chloe Berge, a Vancouver-based journalist who covers travel, conservation, climate, and culture. In this conversation, we talk about things like rivers that can now sue to be free of pollution and the rights of nature movement, Chloe's upbringing in British Columbia, what it feels like to be charged by a mama mountain gorilla, the emergence of solutions journalism, and how too much gloomy news has sparked a new style of storytelling. Chloe shares the concept of rewilding and how it's playing out in Patagonia and Chile and in Scotland, where collective contributions from businesses, nonprofits, and travelers themselves are helping support Scotland's ancient Caledonian forests. Along the way, we also managed to talk about pianos in Siberia, modern romance, and the power of dating apps. Chloe's work has appeared in BBC, National Geographic, The Globe and Mail, Condé Nast Traveler, and many others. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Chloe, thank you so much for being with us this morning. I have been, as you know, tracking your articles on on all different topics at the intersection of conservation and travel for a long time. I think I was first trying to get you on this show last year when you were about to get married. So maybe, I don't know if we still call you a honeymooner. It's probably been a year, but congratulations on that. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me. Yeah. Well, let's start with the Magpie River. This um, piece that you published in National Geographic caught my attention because I had just also read this article in the New Yorker about a ripper or a lake, Mary Jane Lake in Orlando, Florida, that is, um, is suing the city of Orlando to protect itself against development. Yeah, well, like you, I mean, I, I think I forget where I first heard about the Magpie River, which was in eastern Canada and Quebec, um, and being granted legal rights. But like you, I was just fascinated uh, by the concept. It was something I hadn't heard of before, and kind of um, went down a rabbit hole myself, uh, researching it. Um, but yeah, basically, what's happening there is the Magpie River, uh, it's on Innu First Nation territory. And, um, and where is that? So that's in the Cote Nord region of Quebec in Eastern mm-hmm. Canada. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so they call it Metaheko Shipu, uh, which I'm probably butchering the pronunciation of. But, um, you know, that river for them for centuries has been um, so important. It's been a natural highway and the source of their food and medicine. Uh, and it's been uh, threatened by dam development. There is already one dam on the river, but it's um, they're sort of threatening to develop another dam on the river and although it's dams are you know source of renewable energy they also can be quite destructive to the ecosystem um so to protect the river uh the Innu first nation worked with the regional municipality there and declared nine rights for the river including the right to sue be free of pollution um, and maintain biodiversity so it can kind of how it works is they will have two sort of representatives um, if they do ever go 
to court over an issue like this representing the river, but it basically bestows these rights on the river as it would a person. So, so fascinating. I looked into this, I mean, just a little, and I realized that the first time this topic, this idea that, uh, that I, I'm, I want to say inanimate, but our natural world is not inanimate, but that these sort of natural entities would have standing is, uh, was 1971. And yeah, so this, and I, this quote from the Christopher Stone, the lawyer who wrote this article, he said, this is partly because until the rightless thing receives its rights, we cannot see it as anything but a thing for the use of us those who are holding rights at the time. I am quite seriously proposing that we give legal rights to forests, oceans, rivers, and other so-called natural objects in the environment, indeed to the natural environment as a whole. So that's been sort of, I mean, that's been puttering around for many years, right? Did you, but it it hasn't really, I guess it can't catch on until you have because these things can't speak for themselves, they all require a human champion, don't they? Right, right, exactly. And um, yeah, no, it has sort of that, uh, you know, what's happening with the Magpie River sort of echoes this, what we call the rights of nature movement, which yeah, you mentioned Christopher Stone. So he was kind of the first, he was a law professor, um, somewhere, American law professor, I think California. And um, yeah, he wrote that article, Should Trees Have Standing? And um, yeah, it's very interesting. I think basically, well, a lot of what he said in that um, article was sort of looking at exactly what you just said, sort of uh, that rights are, you know, a social construct and they're fluid and they're um, constantly changing. And so maybe this is the next evolution of that is looking at natural entities and, and their rights. Um, which is just a different way of thinking about things, right? <laughs> we do, at least in the Western world. It seems so obvious, and yet and yet it hasn't been obvious. So you're Canadian, I yes. think I have. Yes. And where do you live? I'm just outside of Vancouver, uh, mm-hmm. British Columbia. What do you, so one of the most beautiful, you know, incredible, majestic places. Do you... Do Canadian, do your colleagues and friends, and is this, like, how how top of mind is this in your social and journalistic circles? Are people buzzing about it, or is it sort of, like, meh? I, yeah, I would say not very, <laughs> to be uh-huh. completely honest. I think um, most people that I've sort of shared the story with are still uh, like I was when I discovered it, which was, you know, fairly recently, too. Um, are still sort of surprised by it, but are very interested. And I think, how can you not be? I mean, just like the two of us, it is, it's just uh, so fascinating and uh, such a shift in, in mindset and the way we relate to nature and think about things, right? So there, I think there's definitely an interest when people discover it. Uh, I wouldn't say it's a hot topic necessarily, although the magpie has received quite a bit of coverage um, within Canada and, and, and the issues that are ongoing there. Mm-hmm. It seems like the... The subject is also very entwined with First Nations and Indigenous rights and voices. And so the timing, you know, the timing is kind of great because we're in a moment where we're trying to elevate Indigenous voices. Do you see, like, what do you think about that? 
Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Um, I mean, most of these, well, I shouldn't say most, but a lot of the sort of rights of nature movements and um, the movement to grant rivers legal rights in particular around the world are um, Indigenous-led movements. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, like I was just saying, I think when we're looking at sort of larger global climate issues right now, I think it's really going to be we need sort of a fundamental shift in how we relate to nature. And I think that a lot of indigenous peoples have thought that way for a long time. Um, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. I think I say in my, the national geographic article I wrote, uh, you know, sort of relating to nature as an equal or as a sentient mm-hmm. being is sort of fundamental to a lot of indigenous peoples and their worldview and belief system. Um, so I think, yeah, even for myself. I mean, I think I've learned a lot of that through Indigenous-led tourism and uh, Indigenous experiences. And um, so, yeah, they're really, uh, you know, at the forefront, I think, of, uh, you know, showing us a new way to think about these issues. Mm-hmm. Travel, right. And so this ecotourism and travel experiences are such a great way to collide the average person with the indigenous viewpoint Mm -hmm. and the natural resources and you are you're a travel writer are you a travel writer first or would you say you're a you're a nature writer first yeah you know it's funny um I mean I would say I'm a travel writer but uh quite often I'll have ideas and I do actually have to think, is this a travel story, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, or is it a mm-hmm. nature and conservation story? So I think sometimes I definitely walk that line. Um, but, but yeah, like I, like you just said, I think that travel uh, is a very, it's, it, it makes, makes these conversations and these issues accessible, I think to right. a lot of people that normally it wouldn't be, or, or you just, um, you know, maybe don't know anyone that's part of an Indigenous mm-hmm. community. Um, and so, yeah, it kind of brings a lot of those issues into the mainstream, I think. Mm-hmm. And it has for me, too. Like, I mean, I think that's really where I've I've learned about these things and, um, and why I'm so passionate about uh, Indigenous tourism is because um, it is so inextricably linked to, I think, conservation that's sort of, uh, you know, just inherent in, in a lot of their indigenous indigenous people's you know way of thinking and um in their culture so yeah i mean i um travel for me has been just this vehicle to to come into contact with things that then capture my imagination mm. and and i have to pursue do you remember your first article like how you got started in this path cuz now you're you're so established and I wonder what got you going what was the first thing that you wrote about yeah I mean sort of in the travel space it wasn't really a conservation I think the very first travel story I wrote was it was an outdoors piece um about Japan and sort Mm -hmm. of although although that did sort of look at the intersection of culture and the outdoors (laughs) so I think I've always had that sort of interest Mm -hmm. um uh, and that was for Canadian Geographic. So that was one of my first first pieces um, in the travel space. I've sort of worked in editorial for quite a long time. But, um, you know, yeah, the interest in sort of conservation stories and travel stories that tie into climate, 
um, I would say it's really developed in the last sort of three years. Um, hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's honestly fairly, it's still fairly yeah. new to me in a lot of ways. Um, and it's really, they've kind of like, those interests have really developed side by side. I mean, I think mm-hmm. I really got interested in conservation and climate through travel, really. Um, mm-hmm. through, uh, you know, I think what, when I started travel writing to, you start taking trips that, you know, you start looking for the story as opposed to just, right. um, you know, going for to a place for entertainment or to have fun which is great sometimes yeah. too but, um you know so in doing that and looking for the story uh and where I wanted to go next I think I just was naturally sort of exposed to a lot more of these issues and um so the, the yeah those interests kind of grew very organically um and simultaneously I think what was your what what are your parents like how did you I'm imagining your upbringing in British Columbia as being super earthy, but I realize yeah. I'm just making that up. I have no idea. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, in some ways it was. I think my dad has really, um, he loves nature and loves being outdoors. And so I think I definitely, he instilled in me sort of a, a love of nature. And we did a lot of camping and hiking when I was young. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, even now he's retired, but he, uh, raises bees and makes his own honey and he's always been very um, environmentally aware and so I think yeah I really think I have him to credit in a lot of ways for um, at least just a very fundamental appreciation for nature right bees so that means every time you go home for Thanksgiving you got all kinds of fresh yes I always have around. wonderful raw honey um yeah we actually gave that out as uh, as little Oh, wedding favors <laughs> at our wedding is a little uh-huh. Uh-huh. the best thing. Good yeah. for him. I think <laughs> beekeeping. So I mean, I love it, and then I'm also very afraid of it. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, I'm actually allergic to bees. So no kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Bee stings. So it's like okay, thanks, Dad. <laughs> yeah, my parents moved up to the Okanagan, which is sort of our interior desert region. Um, here. So before he had a sort of hives off on a farm here when we were close, he, when they were closer to Vancouver, but now he has his own own setup there on his property. And um, yeah, no, it's great. Is the Okanagan, is that, um, that's also like wine country too. It is. Place. Yes, it is. So, and that's also where we got married. We got married at, at a winery and it's a beautiful area. It wow. really is. How mm-hmm. did you meet your husband? What's he do? We, he's a teacher. He teaches grade six and mm-hmm. uh, we met on Tinder. <laughs> I mm-hmm. wish I had a better, more romantic story. No, always... that is a ro- that's modern romance, man. It is, I guess. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so when you, so you travel, I guess maybe, well, I don't know. Tell me, are you traveling a lot for projects or, or how do you, how's that going as we yeah. move through these pandemic? Strokes? Yes. Yeah, well, I have been on a few international trips now. Um, so yes, I am traveling internationally again. I'm actually um, going to Africa next week. Ooh, what's going yeah. on there? Yeah, so I'm going to Botswana and then mm-hmm. um, up to East Africa to Uganda and Rwanda. Rwanda, um, I've been before, but they've opened a new gorilla conservation center there. Um, so yeah, I'm going to be, I've written about that. Uh, gorilla conservation before so going back to see that and yeah it should be a very interesting trip and Botswana too there's lots of conservation issues going on there um with oil drilling sort of north of the country um 
so it'll be interesting just to see that landscape firsthand and um and also just looks incredibly beautiful i'm so excited for the wildlife there and uh, but yeah no so definitely traveling again um and for me you know it's really i i say i'd say i'm traveling less now uh, and not just because of you know pandemic restrictions and changes but I am pretty picky about where I go now. Um, I think, you know, when you first start in this industry, it's, mm. it is such a novelty and it always will be. And is such a, a gift to be able to go to these places. So you kind of just want to say yes to everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, it's, you know, I am very aware sort of of my carbon footprint when I fly. Mm-hmm. And um, for me, you know, it, there really has to be a story that will in some way contribute mm-hmm. um, in a good way, I think, for me to be to be flying somewhere and, and, um, you know, sort of having that, that impact on the environment. And and then also, I think it's just, for me, it's a balance. I mean, there are travel writers that are constantly on the go. And for me, I really, I love home too. I always say I'm a, um, a world traveling homebody Mm -hmm. (laughs) because I I love being at home with my husband and we have two dogs and, um, and also just having the time to, to write too, and to be immersed in that. Um, so, so yeah, I, I, yeah, I would say I'm traveling less now than I was at the beginning of my career. Uganda, um, I recently learned a little bit about the mountain gorilla population there and how that is sort of a conservation success story. And Mm. then during the pandemic, because tourism was down and local communities then were affected by that, that poaching sort of returned like hunting for bushmeat which was not a thing like we'd sort of overcome that and now it's kind of back and I I was just um just reading about that like last week that are you so are you familiar with the mountain gorilla trajectory in Uganda yeah I'm more familiar um with it in Rwanda actually Mm -hmm. um have you seen a mountain gorilla I have. Yeah. Oh, yes. man, Chloe, I, I would just love it. Tell me. What oh my gosh. I mean, it really, I mean, I, I had tears in my eyes. It was a mm-hmm. very, very powerful experience. I mean, they're just such beautiful animals and they're huge, um, right? Like they're huge. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they're powerful too. It's really, uh, sort of awe-inspiring being in their presence and um were you like how what is this are you like hiding behind a bush with your binoculars I mean (laughs) well you're not actually which is the crazy part um because they are habituated and you know most of the humans they they don't interact with with um but are around you know they're sort of used Mm -hmm. to human presence and and now thankfully Mm -hmm. most of that human presence isn't from poachers you know it's from the rangers and people who are either working to protect them or um research them. And I'm pretty sure in Rwanda, they have sort of constant surveillance from rangers. Um, Now, like you Mm. said, maybe that changed a bit throughout the pandemic. But um, so yeah, so they're used to seeing people. So that's the wonderful part is you can get, um, you know, say at a safe distance, but pretty close. Is everybody quiet? Just like, yes, you have to be very quiet. Yeah. So you're very quiet, no sudden movements. And they kind of, they brief you before you, you trek up into the jungle to see them. And it's so you walk up. Yeah. Yeah. You walk up. Um, and so they kind of brief you briefly and sort of how to respond if, you know, mm-hmm. to various behaviors and the noises to make this sort of gorilla mm-hmm. talk, <laughs> um, which I had an opportunity to put into use and I didn't because I actually was charged by a mama gorilla. Stop, Chloe. <laughs> 
Yes. Little Canadian Chloe. Yes. And I was doing it. What happened? Go back to the very beginning. Well, it was just, it was at the end and we were actually about to leave to hike back down. And um, it was just me and the ranger for some reason. The two of us were up ahead of the group. And so I had my Zoom lens out, but I was at a very far distance from this mama gorilla and her baby. But I don't know, I guess she saw she saw that lens and she did not like it. And so she came barreling down, um, you know, kind of screaming, teeth bared. And really, um, that's all I remember because the ranger did Because then a- you passed out? <laughs> blacked out. No. Um, no, but the ranger was like just so on it and he whisked me behind his back and, you know, they have, like I said, their sort of way of speaking to the gorillas. So he was up on his tiptoes making the noises and she backed no down. Kidding. No kidding. Um, <laughs> yeah. Is your heart just pounding? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It will, and it, the weird thing is it happened so fast. It was like, mm-hmm. I, actually, I was kind of more afraid after the fact because it just mm-hmm. happened so quickly. I couldn't even sort of process. I just remember seeing her teeth and like her running at me. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so... Like I said, I mean, I wasn't getting too close, but you definitely, you know, as much as they're habituated, we always have to remember that with any wild animal, they're wild animals, mm-hmm. you know? So, um, yeah, always important. It's to so intense. I mean, I really, um, the, the travel experience does sharpen your care and passion for these places, right? Mm-hmm. Like even just hearing, just hearing that from you, makes me more interested in what could I do to help support the communities and the places that are conserving this. You know, I think anyway, it's, it's like an, it's a never ending topic about to travel or not to travel. It seems like a lot of people coming out of the pandemic when we didn't travel so much and now we are more um, alert to the emissions impacts of flying there's mm-hmm. a lot of people just kind of saying, I think we should all stop traveling. And I, I really, we definitely need to uh, revise the frequency. You know, yeah. I think a lot of business travel, but I don't think any, we shouldn't stop, you know, some, we should still go some places and see things yeah. and have oh, these like deep experiences. Cause otherwise you just, it also goes back to what you're saying at the beginning when we were talking about when when you experience a place, you might then be inclined to help fight for it and give it, Absolutely. you know, personhood rights. We just, if things are known, then they can be cared for and protected. And if we don't, if we're not seeing them, if they're not known, it's just so easy for them to get developed or extracted or, you know. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I agree. I think that is the power of travel. It really is. You know, like you were just saying with my experience with the mountain gorillas, I, how could you not come away from seeing these magnificent creatures and not want to do something to protect them and protect the habitat they're living in? I mean, yeah, I think, you know, until you experience some of these things and see them for yourself, it's, um, 
sometimes it's just very abstract. It feels like a lot of those discussions around mm-hmm. right, right, and climate change, and uh, you know, yeah, and it's and it's not just even seeing endangered species or you know ecosystems that are really precarious, um, but just seeing the vastness and diversity of the beauty of, of our natural world you know I mean it, when you see that how can you not want to do something to protect it mm-hmm. I yeah. think um yeah and it's also you know tourism can be can be bad too much tourism yeah. right yes. like so I I find the the double-edged sword aspect so confounding Right. Mm. Because Mm. if everybody went to see the mountain gorillas, that would be a problem, too. You know, I think that's what we just grapple with is it feels like we swing. We swing to such extremes, you know, and every every good intention opens up all these deeper questions like, you know, who should be able to go and why can't everyone go? And if everyone goes then it's destroyed too. And why should only some, you know, the, these, um, these topics that are just so hard to navigate and yet, and yet we should keep trying to navigate them rather than shut it down, I think is where. Yeah. 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 No, for sure. I agree. Um, you know, and it is, um, it's, it's hard, I think for destinations to develop sustainably and figure that out. And, Mm -hmm. um, sort of navigate those issues but uh, but I think that's also why we're seeing you know from travelers uh you know more of an interest in in sustainable travel and and how they can contribute to a place when they visit it Mm -hmm. Uh, you know I think that's something that's really come to fruition over the past few years because people do realize um you know the impact of over tourism and and uh, you know, want to want to at least be leaving a place a bit better. I think that that's really um, become more more popular, anyways, recently. Yeah, talk to me about solutions journalism, Chloe. What mm. is what is this? Yeah, so solutions journalism. Uh, it's um, a term I kind of came across last year, I think. And there's a solutions journalism network, and I attended their webinar with initiative an initiative called Covering Climate Now. So they hosted a webinar. Solutions journalism is basically, I mean, when I first heard it, I kind of thought, oh, is this kind of like good news or good news journalism? And it's Mm. not. It's just sort of speaking about how, I think there was an Atlantic story that came out last year too, talking about how the vast majority of people are just so kind of disillusioned with the news. Mm -hmm. And there's a sense of overwhelm because it's always Mm -hmm. these doom and gloom headlines. And I think a lot of people have just sort of turned away from the news Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, not surprisingly, they found that sort of stories that put a solution forward first uh, right. are, are, could get a great response from people. And um, so that's basically what it's about is sort of saying, you know, here's this issue because it's important to know what the issue is and the gravity of it when we're talking about something like climate change. But okay, we're not going to leave the solution to the last paragraph at the end of the story. You know, we're going to mm. make it focus. I guess. And um, yeah, it's just really interesting that. um, So we just had a session at one of our conferences on uh, climate storytelling. Okay. It was not, we didn't have 
we didn't have the solution in that session, but we were inviting the conversation about what is, what is, what are some things we can do in our travel writing and in our travel experience design to bring forth the topic of climate in a way that is empowering yes. versus, you know, and so it's like, there are scientific facts that you can relay and you can also share local, local initiatives or, mm -hmm. you know, broad initiatives, or you can put, you can put solutions. I, we didn't, I didn't know about solutions journalism <laughs> as a thing, or I would have brought that more into the session. That's so I love that. So give me an example. Like I know you've written a little bit about rewilding is that these stories probably are a great example of this kind of practice. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And like you said, it's kind of, um, you know, when you're talking about empowerment, I think mm -hmm. it can just be paralyzing to hear about nothing but the negative stats. Right. Totally. I right. think it's more inspired. It inspires people to action. It's much more galvanizing when you, yeah, you hear about sort of, uh, you know, what we're doing to change this. Um, but yeah, rewilding is something um, that I was just very interested in learning more about um, and learning about how travelers are sort of taking part in these rewilding experiences. Um, so rewilding basically from, from all the scientists and experts I've spoken to, it's basically a sort of holistic, synergistic approach to ecosystem restoration. So it's not looking at, you know, a more siloed activity like tree planting on its own. It's sort of looking at the removal of invasive species, plus reforestation, plus reintroducing endemic species, and basically getting back to a whole healthy ecosystem. So removing um, invasive species means like some crazy weed. Well, yeah, it could be that in the most of the cases that I've sort of written about, um, for instance, I was just in Chilean Patagonia, and I visited the new Patagonia National Park there. So in the invasive species there um, was livestock. So oh. sort of, yeah, so through the, um, and maybe you wouldn't actually call that an invasive species, but, but, you know, through the last century, sort of agriculture developed to the point there where land was totally degraded, you know, you don't have healthy soil, so nothing's growing. And then of course, all the ha there's habitat loss, there's not the habitat for um, the endemic species of that part of Patagonia. Um, so uh, a nonprofit called Tompkins Conservation sort of did a, it's, it was a decades long project, but to basically remove all the livestock, and they sort of reemployed the farmers that were working on these ranches in rewilding. Huge Park. effort huge community, oh, right? Like going to well, people and saying, we're going to, yeah. we need to take, we need to stop doing livestock. We need you to, it's so complex. Right? Uh, yeah. Complex and controversial because mm -hmm. I mean, we talk about a place like Patagonia, it's just so mm -hmm. ranching and all of that is, is so integral to their livelihood there and their culture and everything. Mm -hmm. So yeah, quite controversial, but um, so over a few decades, they kind of worked to, remove those ranches, remove all of the fencing. Um, and then it was kind of a combination of, uh, you know, once all of that was gone and there wasn't the threat of, of the cattle and the sheep, certain endemic species started to just come back naturally. Um, but then they also worked to do some conservation breeding and actually reintroduce some species into the landscape. And um, yeah, so it was this really 
really ambitious, huge project um, that I, when I found out about it, I was like, I have to see this. And I've been mm-hmm. wanting to, been wanting to get down there since like, I don't know, I guess that was 2019 when I kind of first heard about it. And then the pandemic happened, of course, but I was able to get there um, this March. And it was just so beautiful to see an ecosystem that really is thriving now. And there's still a lot of work to be done there, but um, it, it works. It's, it's for sure sort of a, a solution that works for ecosystem restoration. And, um, and it, the organization yeah. down there is called Rewilding Chile. Did you, and I also know one of our um, Tomorrow's Air supporters is uh, the Raffaele DiBiazzi, the head of Birds Chile. Did you go oh, okay. on a tour? Did you see, what was that like? I'd love to see it. I didn't. So I actually stayed at the Explora Lodge in the park and they sort of mm. do work um, with, with rewilding Chile. Uh, mm-hmm. So most of it was um, just getting out into the landscape and seeing some of these projects and seeing just how the landscape has sort of changed. You didn't um, get charged by anybody. No, I didn't get charged. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> the guanacos, which are the wild Patagonian llamas, they're just so sweet. And uh, yeah. <laughs> they're very docile, no charging. <laughs> right on. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, it's a rewilding is, you know, it's not um, limited to Patagonia either. It's happening all over the world and Australia and um, yeah, sort of other parts of the globe. So it was actually put forward as part of the United Nations um, Declaration on Ecosystem Rec- Restoration or a decade of ecosystem re- uh, restoration is what they called it. So I think, um, yeah, more people are sort of seeing the value in rewilding and, and mitigating climate change and and restoring these ecosystems. It's such a it's such a gimme for travel, right? If you're, it seems like a very accessible thing. Tell me yes. if I'm wrong for yeah. somebody visiting a place to to ask about whether there's a rewilding initiative yeah. going on that you might engage with in some way. Yeah, absolutely. And I've written a couple of pieces on it, and the story I wrote for Condé Nast Traveler, uh, you know, because like many of these terms that kind of come on the sustainability scene, I want to sort of dive into what actually is rewilding, you know, are travelers Mm -hmm. actually helping or is it just a Mm -hmm. way for people to kind of feel good about Mm -hmm. visiting a place? Um, But no, you know, travelers can really make a real impact in these projects. Um, One of the things that sort of came out of all my interviews for that piece was just that a lot of these projects are really underfunded. So, Mm -hmm. you know, and sometimes they just can't get the manpower behind what they need to do. So, Quite often, they will engage travelers, whether it's setting up trail cams or collecting some sort of data that's really valuable to the conservationists and scientists working in that area and and really makes a real contribution. So, Did you go to Scotland also? I, I did um, yes. scan that article, which is a beautiful piece. So, yeah, you were in the Scottish Highlands, too. What's going on there? Yes. What are they rewilding? Yeah. Yeah, so the Scottish Highlands was actually, uh, has been called in the past the ancient Caledonian forest. That's what it was called by the Romans. And it used to be one of the sort of most biodiverse, you know, richest forests um, in Europe. And um, same thing, it's sort of, it was a combination of, of both deforestation and agriculture over the last basically last century which is a pretty common trend in all of these cases it's like it's the last century that has really done it Mm -hmm. um 
but but has been sort of decimated the landscape. And so it was interesting because when we sort of had this idea of what Scotland looks like, and I always have, and I've always wanted to go there. So Castles I just there. and people yeah, in kilts yeah. and ragged cliffs. Right, and... right, right. You get these sort of images, at least for mm-hmm. me, of these, you know, headlands and rugged, mm-hmm. you know, mountains and these sort of vast open spaces. And we call that wilderness, or that's what mm-hmm. we think of. And, you know, most of the people I spoke to there in the Cairngorms National Park say, well, there's actually very little wild left here. You know, this isn't how it's supposed to look. It's actually supposed to be very forested. And, um, you know, there's supposed to be a lot more wildlife here. And and so mm-hmm. what we think of as wild in Scotland, um, there actually isn't a lot of wilderness left there. So, so yeah, there's a, a large network of nonprofits and businesses um, working to rewild and reforest that landscape and um, bring back endemic species and, and like I said, they're kind of doing it. There's there's basically two kinds of rewilding I've learned about. One's more passive where you kind of just clear out the invasive species and let the let nature do its thing, um, which works, but is often quite slow. So then there's there's more, uh, you know, of a, a way to sort of intervene and, and help speed things along. So they're doing that there too. There's a lot of uh, tree planting and, um, you know, bringing in certain species maybe from other parks and reintroducing them there. Um, but yeah, but it's a very, very interesting area and very beautiful. Is it funded? Uh, so like in Chile, it was the Tompkins family, Doug Tompkins, who is a successful businessman. He's no longer with us, but we know his wealth uh, was vast. Is this yeah. the scenario also in Scotland? I'm on this website for the Dundragon rewilding okay. estate is, so yeah. is it um is it driven by personal philanthropy or how are these things coming together or do you even know yeah i think it's a mix it's not um you know in patagonia like it really was the tompkins conservation that started all of that there's not really sort of one organization uh, it really is this vast network of mm. organizations and business owners. I spent a few days up at mm. Alladale Wilderness Reserve, which is outside of Cairngorms National Park. It's farther north in the Highlands. Mm-hmm. But they're, they've also done a lot of rewilding work and that's sort of their whole tourism model up there. Um, so yeah, it's kind of a network of, of ecotourism businesses plus nonprofits like the Dundragon Center, which they're actually opening a rewilding center that with a lodge that you'll be able to stay at. I think that's set to open next year. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of, there's a lot of, a lot of players there. I love that because it feels like um, we can all take some part. You know, my, I get so frustrated feeling like I just have to wait for somebody who has more wealth or more political right. power to right. bring about the changes that I want and maybe I'm casting my vote, but my guy still doesn't win. And, and yet here, you know, travel and these travel experiences and organizations do offer a way into action on big, yeah. complicated topics. Yeah. That, um, I'm gratified by that. Yes, absolutely. I think you're right. It goes back to, you know, even what we were talking about with the rights of nature movement and, mm-hmm. you know, how tourism sort of plays into that. Um, absolutely. I think it's, once again, it kind of makes those issues accessible, lets, lets travelers and 
you know, everyday people who aren't conservationists and scientists feel like they're actually doing something. Mm -hmm. Um, Like you said, is very gratifying. So what do you like to, what kind of books do you read or do you have time to read? But I'm imagining (laughs) you're a big reader since most I love to read. Who should we read? I'm always discovering new authors, you know, I mean, I think in the travel space, um, I've always really loved Robert McFarlane. He's a British author um, and journalist. Uh, mm-hmm. He just writes about nature really beautifully. Mm-hmm. Um, Sophie Roberts is another journalist. I really love her writing. And she um, wrote her debut novel, I guess, a couple of years ago now, The Lost Pianos of Siberia, which was Ooh. fascinating. What's that about? I'm going to check that one out. The yeah, Lost Pianos of Siberia. Really about the Lost Pianos of Siberia. It's very... Um, yeah, very kind of uh, just this cultural uh, journey. It starts in Mount Mongolia and she tra- travels across Siberia sort of um, in search of this lost musical culture. And um, it's just a very compelling narrative wow. too. It's a really interesting history. I love the idea of, of becoming passionate about a particular thing. Like, right, I do like too. Like this form of music. Yes. And then that becomes the guide for your travel decision-making. You know, Maren Krings is another um, artist for air within Tomorrow's Air, and she's been a big uh, advocate for hemp, industrial hemp. And she was exploring the use of hemp around the world and ended up just, you know, in these crazy places around the world where in Mongolia or in China, I think, and in Germany and Sweden, where people are pioneering different products or uses for hemp. Anyway, that, yeah. you know, this I book about the meat, I'm like, this is a thing. Yeah. This could be, we should no, all I agree. It. I have so much respect and admiration and sort of fascination with people that become laser focused mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. experts in one sort of small, obscure subject. I think it's, mm-hmm. yeah, it's great. And we need those people in the world, right? But Tell us, because I think I'm nearing the hour here. I know I have to let you go on with your life. But what um, what article is coming up soon? What should we keep a lookout for? I definitely, all these, you know, the pieces you've published, Chloe, are so well-researched. I'm mm. scanning through your rewilding piece in Condé Nast Traveler. And the, of course, the way we met, our, the National Geographic article that, Yes. that mentioned tomorrow's air and the other um, climate initiatives. So mm-hmm. I, I get inspired and educated by your work. What's oh. coming up next? Well, thank you. That's so kind of you to say. And um, yeah, I really enjoy the research. I always have. I mean, I think uh, whether it's in university or now, I really, I love that part of writing. I love, and sometimes I really go, you know, go down a rabbit hole with it. Uh, it makes books. it deeper though it's better than just a superficial yeah, like try the coffee at this shop you know that yeah exactly and, and usually you know or not usually always with these subjects mm-hmm. I'm always genuinely very curious and interested to learn about them so yeah I do I really enjoy the sort of research and interview process um but yeah next we'll be writing about Scotland so yeah mm-hmm. I will be writing story about the Cairngorms and, and the rewilding that's happening there I also visited Scotland's three UNESCO creative cities so they launched a UNESCO heritage trail um, uh-huh. last year I believe and uh, yeah they've included these 
three creative cities in it. So the city of literature and um, design and music. So I got to visit wow. those two. Yeah, which was very cool. And, um, and was what a different- What do they call the city of literature? Yeah, this that's Edinburgh, mm-hmm. the city of literature. Yeah, um, just, you know, it's sort of long literary history there. And, mm-hmm. and even now it's a very interesting sort of um, literary scene. Um, but yeah, that I, I'd also like to write about that. So hopefully we'll be writing about that because I think it's a it's a different way to think about what a sustainable or green city is, you know, and looking at how um, culture plays into sustainability. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So those are two pieces that, um, yeah, hopefully I'm looking forward to sharing soon. Smart destination planning. Well, and I guess there'll be something coming out from your your upcoming visit to Botswana and Uganda. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, that as well. Who knows what might happen on that one? Um, well, <laughs> Chloe, thank you so much for making time. And I look forward to talking with you and reading more of your work in the coming days. Yes. Well, thank you so much for having me, Christina. And uh, yeah, it's always a um, pleasure. Well, it's always a pleasure to chat. I think this is actually our first actual conversation, right? It's always it might be. We've been virtual. We've been emailed. Yeah, it's always been virtual. One day we'll meet in person. (laughs) Right on.